discussing how Bhagavad Gita addresses the fundamental human problem. Really the human problem is one of a sense of inadequacy, incompleteness and therefore not being comfortable with one's own self not being happy with one's own self, not being satisfied with one's own self, this is primarily the problem of human being. <coughs> because he's self-conscious and he's conscious of his self, which he finds to be inadequate, incomplete, not up to his own expectations. <coughs> it is this dissatisfaction with one's own self, which sometimes results into non-acceptance, in a rejection of one's own self, is what causes sorrow or sadness or unhappiness. It is this perception of oneself that I'm inadequate, I'm incomplete, that I do not live up to my own expectations, I do not measure up to my own expectations of myself. All the time judging oneself and finding judging oneself as inadequate in one's own perception is the cause of sorrow or unhappiness in the life of human being. This is what this is how Vedanta diagnoses the problem of human unhappiness. <clears throat> there is no cause for unhappiness other than one's perception about oneself. There is nothing else which can necessarily make me unhappy. 
Nor is anything else which can necessarily make me happy. The thing that necessarily makes one happy is this perception of myself that I am inadequate and that which necessarily makes me happy is again the perception that I am adequate. Therefore, we should know this. Unhappiness and happiness, both are caused not by any events, not by, you know, they are not, cannot be equated to any event, to anything, any situation. But they are just caused by my perception of myself. It is possible that an event happening out there can make me look at myself in a certain way and make me feel an inadequate and cause sorrow. But understand that sorrow is not caused by something out there. It triggers. It triggers that perception, brings back this perception that I am inadequate. And that's when I feel sorry unhappy. Again something out can happen which can create in me a perception that I'm alright, that I'm adequate. Then I feel happy. It is my perception which is cause of my unhappiness and my perception which is cause of my happiness. If this is understood, which of course Arjuna did not understand, but he knew there was something he needed to understand. And that is why, as we said yesterday, he submitted himself to Lord Krishna. And the first statement of Lord Krishna is, Ashochan Anvashochastvam. Here, Arjuna, you are grieving for that which does not deserve to be grieved. Arjuna thinks that he is grieving for his near and dear ones who perhaps die and what would happen to them. He thinks that he is grieving for them. But really speaking, I am always grieving for myself. Someone's death or some happening can cause, as I said, a perception about myself in me, but ultimately the one I am grieving for is my own self. <clears throat> Arjuna feels, what will I do without this? So there are two complexes in Arjuna's mind as we can see in Bhagavad Gita. One is, what will I do without them? They are near and dear ones and how, what will, I, what will happen to me without them? He thinks there will be a tremendous sense of loss. And secondly, that I will become their killer. It's another problem. That I will be the cause of killing them. And they will be killed by me. The tremendous sense of guilt there. So these are the two causes, specifically in case of Arjuna, which cause grief or sadness in him. Our causes can be different. Just because I did not succeed in something, I, I fail, I can be unhappy. Because you did not speak to me properly, I can feel unhappy. Whatever can be the reason. 
because he did not smile at me. Because he, sm- he laughed too much, I mean, he laughed at me, whatever, you know. He did not even smile at me, so I'm unhappy. He laughed at me, so too much smile also makes man happy. Too little smile also makes man happy. If you don't talk to me, I'm unhappy. If you talk too much, then also I'm unhappy. If you don't write, then I'm unhappy. If you write what I do not like, then also I'm unhappy. Anything can trigger unhappiness. And we will accept that the causes of unhappiness of people would be all different. But as we said, ultimately I feel unhappy. Only when there is created in me a perception that I am inadequate, I am helpless. I am a victim, suppose. Feel victimized, feel helpless, feel being controlled. Therefore, not able to do what I have to do, what I want to do. I cannot do what I want to do. I cannot avoid what I do not want. All of these things cause in me a sense of helplessness. Meaning that I am not adequate. I am not quite adequate to the situation. Thus what causes me a conclusion that I am inadequate will be different at different times with different people and you know in different conditions. And therefore there seem to be many causes for unhappiness and sadness. As Mahabharata says, Shokasthana Sahasrani Dukkasthana Shadani Charan. Avishanti Dine Dine Murkhasya. For an ignorant person, for a stupid person, there are hundred causes for grief and thousand causes for sorrow every day. For an ignorant person. Because Lord Krishna says, Gatasum agatasum se nano shochandi panditaha. As far as the wise persons are concerned, whether somebody is, is there or not there, he is gone or not gone, he is dead or not dead, whatever his event, nothing in fact causes any sorrow in him. Meaning, nothing causes a sense of inadequacy in him, understand? It is not that a wise person doesn't un- understand what's happening. It is not that he is not sensitive to what is happening. Except that that button of inadequacy has been removed. And therefore, nothing can, any, any amount of buttons you push. But then you cannot make him feel inadequate because he has recognized his true self. As Vedanta teaches, adequateness or adequacy is my nature. And still, somehow, I have perception that I am inadequate. This is the problem. If I was really inadequate or small or limited, then it's understandable that I feel limited. But I feel limited when I happen to be limitless. This is the thing. If being limited was my nature, I would have been comfortable being limited also, understand? Everything is comfortable with its own nature. At one point, Shankaraji says that a worm that grows in poison has no problem with poison. Because that is natural for that. 
Fire has no problem with being hot because it's natural for that. Ice has no difficulty being cold because that is nature. And so also being, being inadequate whereby nature, I would have been no difficulty in being small or inadequate, but that's not my nature. That's the reason why I have problem with that. That's why there's a conflict. So this is Vedanta's teaching. In Puja Swamiji's words, you are the problem and you are the solution. I shouldn't say you are the problem. Your perception about you is a problem and your perception about you is a solution. <clears throat> my false perception that I'm inadequate is a problem and my true perception that I'm adequate is a solution. This is nutshell what Vedanta teaches, that's all. If this is understood, that you don't need, we don't need anything further. But this is what Lord Krishna said. So, the solution that Lord Krishna offered for Arjuna's grief, meaning that grief for any human being, Lord Krishna started what we call the Paramarthika or the absolute point of view. Like a little child is playing with a clay doll, doll falls from his hand, the doll is broken, child is crying, and then father comes along. So my child, what's the matter? Ah, my toy is broken. Oh, I'll give you another one. What's the big deal? No, no, I want the same one. He says, you know. Come on now, you shouldn't cry for it. This is after a clay doll. What's the big deal? That's what the father feels. Because father has what we call a different perception of the value of that thing, where the child has a different perception. For the child, that clay doll is, I guess, very valuable. Father knows the value. Father would have a problem if it was a golden doll, then father also would have a problem. So, so Lord Krishna, first of all, teaches Arjuna what we call the absolute reality. And looking at his problem from the standpoint of the truth or the reality that he is, Lord Krishna says, Yayenam Vetti Hantaram Yaschenam Manyatehatam Ubhautavana Vijanitaha Nayam Hantena Hanyate. Arjuna's complex that I will be their killer. I will be the agent of act of killing and killing my near and dear ones. Swajanam hihatam katham hatva sukhina sama madhava. He madhava. Oh Lord Krishna, how can we be happy killing our near and dear ones? Etanahantumichami gnatopi madhusudana. Madhusudana, O Lord Krishna, I do not want to kill them, even if they kill me. Aho batam hatpapam kartam vyavasitavayam yadrajya sukhalobhena hantum sajan mudyadaha. How sad, how, how sad it is that we, who are intelligent and thinking people, have now 
engage in this act of we are prepared now to kill our near and dear ones for the sake of kingdom we have out of greed for kingdom and pleasure that we have now engage ourselves in killing these people how sad it is how how shameful it is this is how arjuna feels he feels ashamed he has a sense of guilt because he is ready he is going to or he will be required to kill these people therefore he looks upon himself as a doer in vedantic language you can say that arjuna looks upon himself as a karta karta means the agent of doing as as a doer of an action so whenever i look upon myself as a doer karta and enjoy bhokta karta and bhokta doer and experience you can say right now i am performing the act of speaking i am a speaker thus i am the agent of act of speaking you are the listeners you are the object of my action i am performing the act of speaking and you people are the object of my action you are being spoken to and suppose i say something which is hurtful then you'll be hurt by my words because you are the object of my action i am the subject or the agent of the action you are the object of action this is the you know all our interactions involve these two things the one who responds the one who responded to karta and bhokta i am the karta you are the bhokta i am the agent of action you are the object of my action so what happens suppose i say something which is not becoming of me suppose out of anger i say something later on i regret i have a sense of guilt for having done something which is not right which is not proper which is not becoming of me so this karta whoever looks upon himself or herself as a doer has a potential problem that whenever he or she does something which is not appropriate in their own perception then there is a sense of guilt having done something wrong on the other hand whoever is object of action meaning that you are the object of my action of speaking and if i say something which is hurt which is not pro- which you think is not proper then you are hurt so a person who perform who thinks that is performing action has a potential of feeling guilty and someone who is a listener who thinks that he is being spoken to improperly feels hurt so understand this that kartrutvam or sense of doership has a potential of creating a sense of guilt because the karta or the doer is possible that 
he may do something which is not in keeping with his own values. And Bhokta, the experiencer, always has a potential of feeling hurt whenever that person feels that he is not being treated properly. Hurt and guilt. These are the important causes of our unhappiness. See, most of the situations revolve around this. Swamiji did something, he said something, somebody did things, I feel hurt. That's a very common cause of our unhappiness. And when we are conscientious then, another thing also makes us unhappy that I did something, Swamiji, I should not have done it. I should not have said it. Or I should have done it. Why did I not do what I should have done? Or why did I do what I should not have done? Both ways. Sometimes we should reach out and do help. At that time somehow, you know, uh, my greedy mind says, no, no, don't do that. Later I say, why didn't I do that? Or sometimes out of anger or jealousy I may do something. Later on I would say, why did I do that? Thus there can be a sense of guilt in karta, a sense of hurt in bhakta. So whenever I look upon myself as karta or bhokta, doer or experiencer, I am likely to suffer from the sense of guilt and hurt. So Arjuna is suffering from a sense of guilt, that he will become the killer of these people. How can that be? Katham bhishma maham sankhe dronam chamadusudana Ishubhi pratiyotsyami pujarhuvari sudhara. Oh Lord Krishna, you are asking me to fight with these people. Lord Krishna sort of taunted him. He said, what is this? In the midst of battlefield, after coming here, you say, hey, you don't want to fight? What is this? Like this fellow, you know, that he agreed to get married. He, all preparations are done. They're already on the, you know, the, the altar, you know. And last moment is, I want to go away, I don't want to get married, you know. For whatever reason. So what is this? Here, this is not the place to say that. You should have said it earlier. Arjuna, you should have said before coming to battlefield that I don't want to fight. Okay, we would have done something. Now you are in the midst of battlefield. You ask me to place your chariot between the two armies so that you can survey the army. And now you say, I don't want to fight. What is this? This does not behoove of you. You are a very courageous man, man of valor, very well-known warrior. This is not right for you. And thus Lord Krishna taunted him, tried to provoke him. Tried to provoke that warrior in him. So Arjuna could somehow get out of his grief and start fighting. Even that did not help. That did not help. Under normal conditions, Arjuna would have jumped, and, you know, but this time, that you can imagine how much deeply he was immersed in the ocean of grief, that even this kind of taunting words of Lord Krishna also could not provoke him. On the other hand, he says to Lord Krishna, Katham Bhishmaham Sankhe Dronanchamadhusudha Ishubhi Pratiyotshami Pujarhavari Sudha 
Oh Lord, you are asking me to fight with Dronacharya Bhishma Vidava? I say, in fact, they deserve to be worshipped with flowers. You are asking me to throw arrows at them? How can I to shoot arrows at them? How can I do this? In many, many words, Arjuna expressed that this is not right for me to kill them. So, his tremendous sense of consciousness that I'll be the killer. This was a very important cause for Arjuna's grief. And secondly, that all these people will die. Not only what will happen to them, what will happen to me when, without them. When somebody dies, we think that we are weeping for the person who is dead, but we are crying for our own self. Because we experience, we suffer from a sense of loss. Since these are the two causes of Arjuna, therefore you find these two topics coming again and again in Bhagavad Gita. First the topic of death, and secondly the topic of sense of doership. Arjuna's causes of grief were the death of this near and dear ones, and secondly his his conclusion or his notion that he will be their killer. So first of all, Lord Krishna says, addressing both of these, yenam vetihantaram yashenam manyatehatam ubhautavana vijanitaha nayam hantyan hanyate. Here you know, one who thinks that atma kills or one thinks that Atma become, gets killed. In case of Arjuna, he'll become the killer. In case of the Bhishma, there are others, they'll become killed. So Lord Krishna says, who kills? And who gets killed? Have you ever thought about that? One who thinks that the self kills, and someone else who thinks that the self becomes self gets killed. Self kills means what? The self is the agent of act of killing. Self is killed means what? Self is the object of act of killing. Understand, you know? In an action, two things are involved. The agent of action, the object of action. Agent is called karta, the doer. Object is called bhokta, the experience. So one of the things that the self is a doer, or you think that the self is experiencer, both of them do not know. How come? I did it, Swamiji. You do not know. Lord Krishna says, I, Lord, I'll be their killer. You do not know. They will kill me. Then also you do not know. Nahayam hanti nahanyate. The self, neither he kills nor he is killed. Na hanyate hanyamane sharire. Even when the body is slain, the self or atma is not slain. If this is understood, if the true nature of myself is that I am not a doer, I am not an experiencer, I am not a karta, I am not a bhokta, I am ever changeless. In and through all the changes, this is the, the truth about the self. 
And the solution to the problem of human grief is provided by Bhagavad Gita on the basis of knowing the true nature of self. Because we should know that we are always grieving for ourselves. We are always unhappy for ourselves. We are sad for ourselves, not for anybody else. Anybody else may trigger the, the unhappiness about myself, but ultimately they said, I am the cause of my sadness or unhappiness or sorrow. So Lord Krishna says, hey, you or the self should not become the cause of sorrow or unhappiness because you are neither a killer nor can you be killed. Nijayate mrete vakadachit. Nayam bhutva bhavita vana bhuya. Hey, the self is never born. It never dies. The weapons cannot cleave that. The fire cannot burn. The water cannot wet. The air cannot dry. Meaning that no weapons of destruction have any effect upon the self. He is indestructible. He is immortal. <coughs> Free from death and birth. So this is how Lord Krishna first of all provides the solution to the problem of human sadness, or human unhappiness by revealing the true nature of the self. <coughs> If Arjuna became enlightened by this discourse, then further discourse would not have been necessary. If Arjuna could see this fact, you're right, said, Lord, I understand. I'm not a doer, I'm not an angel, I'm changeless, I'm ever limitless. Veda vinashanam nityam ya e namajam avyayam katham sapurushaf partha kam ghadayati handigam. Yeah, Arjuna. If one comes to know the self is unborn, is indestructible, changeless, then how can he do something or make anybody do anything? There cannot be kartrutvam or karaitrutvam, there cannot be worship or making someone else do something. This is the first thing. This is called the, the, the knowledge. This is the knowledge of the self. Which is what Lord Krishna first imparted. Of course, gaining knowledge of the self requires me to focus my attention totally upon myself. Isn't it so? Whenever we want to know something, whenever we want to see something, Suppose you want to see some object at a distance, such as in a cynic, cynic outlook, that those binoculars are there, and you want to see a church, you know, far away. So when you went for this, for a ride, and went to a cynic lookout point, this friend of mine says, Swamiji, look at that beautiful church. So I, I also started looking through my binocular. In the, not in that direction, Swamiji, not in the, not in the north, look in the west. Okay. 
So first of all, I must direct my binocular or, or the telescope, I should say, telescope in the direction where the object is, and then see, I can't see. Very good, Swami, you do tune up, you know, you have to uh, uh, focus your lens. So when I focus that, then I can see that object clearly, I can enjoy. Thus, for seeing something, we require two things. First of all, our telescope must be directed in that where the object is, and also the telescope must be focused. And so also in order for me to see the self, to know my own self, in this case, the means of knowledge is our mind. Mind is where the ignorance is, and mind is where the knowledge is to take place. In order for the knowledge of self to take place, it is necessary that I must first direct my mind inward. From outward, it must be directed inward. And secondly, it must be focused. Focus the same wavelength and same frequency as the self is. Meaning that the mind also must become as subtle as the self is. Therefore, to really gain the knowledge of the self, it's one thing to understand it intellectually. It is another thing to actually see that fact about myself. So problem will be solved really when this becomes my knowledge. I can, you're right, Swamiji, you're right, Lord. I understand. When I can see drishyate tvagraya buddhya sukshmaya sukshmadarshibhi Upanishad says that we require a mind that enjoys single-pointedness, that enjoys subtlety, that enjoys calmness, that enjoys tranquility, that enjoys contemplativeness. When we have a mind like that, then definitely we can see the truth of ourselves. Then we can have the right perception of ourselves. <clears throat> but that's difficult. For me to direct my mind inward, I must disengage it from everything that is outward. For me to enjoy a mind that enjoys the focus, it must have the steadiness. So mind must have vairagya, it must have detachment or dispassion for everything outside other than the self. And mind must have the single pointness or focus to be able to appreciate the nature of self. This requires a lot of preparation. That's the reason why in spite of being told and in spite of understanding that yes, this is right, it still does not become our knowledge. It doesn't bless us. We feel blessed as long as we are here. As soon as we walk out, then Swamiji says, all the samsara comes back again. That is because the ability to disengage the mind from its preoccupation and focusing where we want, that ability may still not be there. And Lord Krishna sees the need for creating that ability or capacity in the mind. For that, Lord Krishna gives a discourse on what we call Karma Yoga. Arjuna, you are not yet ready to retire. 
Gaining this knowledge will require a person to be inward looking. We require a person to be contemplative. He requires his mind to enjoy the tranquility and focus. You can say he's a renunciate who has nothing else, nothing else to do, who has no other agenda. Who is a renunciate, renunciate the person who has no agenda at all. Other than gaining the knowledge of the self. No other agenda. As long as there is some agenda in the mind, so long mind will be concerned about what its agenda is. If I still have to do things, need to accomplish things, then mind will be always working for bringing about that accomplishment. At that time, the mind is not available to contemplate upon the self. Therefore, there is suggestion in Bhagavad Gita, although not very clearly spoken about, but there is suggestion that you require to be a renunciate who has given up all other agenda, who has only one agenda, namely gaining abidance in this knowledge. Arjuna, then you can really become truly enlightened. Then you can have abiding knowledge. Which is what Arjuna wants to do actually. Arjuna wants to give up his action and go to forest and but Lord Krishna says just because you give up the action, give up one particular action does not mean that you have given up everything. You can give up one thing which is inconvenient to you, which is painful to you. But your mind still needs to do something and therefore if not this it will do something else. It is not that you can become contemplative simply by disengaging from an action. Contemplativeness is the result of a lot of work. Arjuna, first of all, you must live a life, your own life as it is, which change attitudes and priorities. So first step that is necessary as Lord Krishna teaches, is a change in our priorities and attitudes. Not giving up what we are doing, continuing to do what we are doing. What we are doing may or may not change. But then, the understanding with which we are doing that, and the attitude with which we are doing, that will definitely change. That's what Lord Krishna, that's called Karma Yoga. Life of activity. The knowledge, in which, for knowledge, it is preferable that there should be life of disengagement, which you may call life of renunciation. However, however, in order to prepare our mind for the knowledge, it is important that we should continue to engage in our duties with a new understanding and with new attitudes. What's a new understanding? How do I look at my activities? How do I look at my duties? How do I look at the various actions that I am required to perform? How do I look at the roles which I am required to perform? So far, I was looking upon them as a means of maximizing my material gains or I was looking upon them as means of satisfying my ego. 
so far my life was led. I mean, I may be a sincere person, hard-working person, even an efficient person, and still not a spiritual person necessarily. So who is a spiritual person and who is a materialistic person? A materialistic person is one who performs his actions for sense gratification or ego gratification. For gratification the person performs actions. Meaning that as a result of doing things he expects to gain more gratification. The mind as we said seeks gratification at different levels. Either it seeks gratification at the level of senses by enjoying pleasurable objects. Then also there is gratification. When you enjoy some good food, enjoy some good music, enjoy good, you know, colors, forms, sounds, taste, touch, smell, is pleasure, gratification. Or enjoy the company of the near and dear ones, there is also gratification of emotions. Or enjoy knowing new things every day, or discovering new things, that is also gratification of the intellect. Or, you enjoy achievement of some power and position and importance and recognition, that is the gratification of ego. So an ordinary human being is always looking for gratification in life. And whatever he or she does, usually is done to gain one or the other kind of gratification. Because there is a conclusion that happiness comes when I find gratification. So gratification is looked upon as the source of happiness. And that's why he is seeking gratification. And therefore he performs his activities with the desire to gain gratification. This is a samsari. This is called a samsari. Why? What's wrong with that family? Hasn't God made all this world for us to enjoy? Has he not given his intellect to know new things? Has he not given the ego to dominate and control? And you know, He's given us all this. All these things are given to us. Everything in the world has always two sides. Everything can either bind us or everything can free us. This process of gratification of senses or ego what do you think will lead me to? Is it not our experience that more I satisfy my ego, more satisfaction it is seeking? Is it not so? Has the ego ever said, enough, thank you now, I am saturated. Our stomach can say, enough, alam, enough. Four chapadis, enough. Half a plate full of rice, enough. Six idlis, enough. Five laddus, enough. Even a glutton will say enough at some point in time. But has the ego ever said enough? This much power I gain, then is it enough? I want to still rise higher. 
This much recognition I gain, one time president, I'm a president of the United States, then no, I want to be two-term president. They don't allow more than two terms, otherwise you would want to be a lifetime president. Is it not so? Who would not want to? Is it enough that I'm a millionaire? No. I want to be a multimillionaire. No. I want to be a millionaire. No. Multimillionaire. No. I want to be the richest man in the world. Trishnavadim ko gataha. Has anybody ever find, found the avadi or the end of this craving? No. The senses are such that more we try to satisfy their craving, more intense the craving becomes. The ego is such that more we try to satisfy or gratify that, more demanding it becomes. This is a rule which unfortunately an, an unknown thinking person does not see. This is very evident, this rule. If we examine our experience, it will become very clear. That in spite of this is a bottomless pit, in spite of feeding my ego, come on, whatever it demands, I keep on providing it, keep on supplying and then fellow always, you know, ask for more and more. Is there ever going to be a time when my ego will say that, I have enough, I'm satisfied, never. So this process of ego gratification is a process which is doomed to failure, meaning that it can never give me any lasting sense of success or satisfaction in my life. When the ego is gratified, momentarily I feel happy, no doubt. But then it is like pouring ghee into fire. Momentarily fire may be quenched, but it will come up you know, with twice the force. And thus, you know, there are sometimes when a person is very hungry and you give a little food, you know, there's sometimes in India, the sadhus from in winter, the sadhus come down from Himalayas, they come down to the plains and they come to the towns, you know, and villages and cities and asking for bhiksha. And so these people are very uh, religious and devoted and yes, yes they're very happy that it's, then a sadhu or a, a holy man has come, please come, have a seat, you know, and start feeding. So my mother would start feeding this person. And my mother would give one chapati to me, second chapati. How many chapatis do I'm going to eat? Three or four. So she's give one, two. Says, Ma, mother, he would say, don't give me one or two, give me one or two inches, you know, he would say. Not one or two number. Because a few chapatis only enhances his hunger, that's what it does. And so, so also, more we give to the ego, more its hunger is enhanced, poor thing. <clears throat> this is one way of leading life. Other way is what? Doing the same thing. But now, the agenda is changed. Then you become a yogi. From bhogi, you become a yogi. Bhogi means a man given to gratification. Yogi means a man given to inner growth or given to discovering inner satisfaction, discovering freedom. This intelligent person or thinking person recognizes that the way I am living my life 
I am becoming more and more dependent, more and more helpless in fact. Formerly I had a small little apartment and a few things and I, mean, I was dependent on that many things. Today I have a bigger, I have a big house and I have 1500 things and I, I need all those things. So what is happening is that my needs are only growing, my dependence is growing, that's what is happening. As I say, what is meant by progress is converting luxuries into necessities. And thus, my necessities are growing, meaning that my dependence is growing. If a person recognizes that, then perhaps he would want to stop and think, and then, then maybe do something else. Most people don't. They just keep on chasing the so-called success, like the deer or the animals in forest chasing the mirage water, thinking that it's real water. They keep on pursuing it. And as they run towards this water, the mirage seems to move farther and farther. That's one way of life. Other way is what? The actions I perform are not for gratification of ego. Then for what? For gratification of Ishvara. Another altar. So we have in our life two altars of worship. Usually, I'm a worshipper of my ego. Always promote my ego. Second is, another altar is of Ishwar or God, that through my action, I promote Him, I worship Him. That is another possibility. So a person who does this is called a yogi. Other fellow is bhogi, this fellow is yogi. This word Lord Krishna says, Tasmad yogi bhava arjuna, hey arjuna, you become a yogi. Dedicate your actions not for fulfillment or gratification of ego, dedicate your actions for the gratification or as an offering to Ishvara. Who is Ishvara? Who is this God you are talking about? Lord Krishna says, Yatah pravatir bhutana, Yena saramidam tadam svakarmana tamabhyarcha siddhim vinnati manavaha. Yarjuna, God is everywhere. In fact, whatever is his God. Yena saramidam tadam, one by whom everything is pervaded, meaning who is present everywhere. Yatah pravrutyar bhutanam, and one who is source of all the activities. So one who impels all the activities, one who is responsible for all the activities taking place anywhere, including the act of speaking also, it is because of the prompting, because he is impeller of that act. That you are able to listen right now, also is because, that's whenever any action is taking place, any movement is taking place, understand that Ishwara or God is, as the one because of whom, that activity takes place. As Upanishad says, Bhishasmad Vatah Pavate Bhisho Deti Suryaha. The wind blows, the sun shines, the fire burns, the clouds rain is all due to him. Or Shrutrasya Shrutram Manasaha Manaha. It is because of whom the ears are able to hear, the mind is able to think, the breath is able to prana is able to breathe. 
the eyes are able to see, the ears are able to hear, because of whom this is happening? Who is everywhere, and because of whom all the actions or activities are. So that is God. Not confined to a person or personality. But Swami, then how come Hindus are all worshipping these images and they simply worship individual gods, personal gods? That's a stepping stone, that's how. This God is too vast for the mind to really uh, visualize or, 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 or relate to. Therefore, the same principle is presented in the form of a of an icon or a murti or a form or name which becomes a stepping stone. Therefore, worshipping each same Ishwara in a form is not opposed to worshipping Ishwara. But Bhagavad Gita describes Ishwara in this way. The one who is a creator, sustainer, dissolver. The one who is the ordainer. One who manifests as the very order or the law around which the whole universe functions. Here Arjuna, perform your day-to-day activities as an offering to him, as a worship to him. Recognize that you are a devotee already. Everybody is born a bhakta or a devotee. We are all bhaktas. We are all devotees. People have problems. Swamiji does Vedanta accept devotion. But devotion, you, because you are a devotee, born devotee. Usually I am devoted to my ego. That's my usual, uh, you know, uh, altar of devotion. What is needed to be done is shift that focus from ego to Ishwara. From individual self to the self of all. That's what it means. With Ishwara, the self of all. One is present everywhere. This ego is a little insignificant entity present only here in this body-mind complex. But Ishvara is one who pervades everything. They will stretch your ego. Become more and more inclusive. Don't devote your life merely for your own self, maybe for your own ego. Let the world also have a place in your life. Right now, of course, most important for me is my ego. Perhaps my near and dear ones may have some importance also, as long as they are, you know, as long as they are agreeable to me, favorable to me, they help me, they are useful to me, so long it's fine. So right now my life is centered around my ego and whatever is useful to the ego. Lord Krishna says, stretch this ego, include others. He, Lord Krishna talks of very big things. He says, include the whole universe, that's a big thing. But how the duties prescribed in the Vedas, you person perform those duties, automatically his life would be inclusive. Automatically the world would have a place in his life. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Because by being self-centered, you are only hurting yourself. You think that you are very clever and very smart and you are able to manipulate the world and 
fulfill your self-centeredness, I mean, you know, you think that you are very smart, but that's not so. That may be called worldly smartness, but it is moral or spiritual unsmartness. A person thinks that he's very clever when he gets benefit from everybody and, you know, he keep, and holds on to, aggrandizes everything, appropriates everything from others, he thinks that he's very smart. Lord Krishna, he's a thief. One who receives all the benefits and does not, does not return the favor. He's a thief. So in order to become a yogi, it is necessary to have a change in perception of life. Change in perception of what my objective is. Change in perception of what my place in the scheme of things is, is, is that, that change of perception is required. Thus Lord Krishna is teaching, change of perception in two stages. Ultimately, it is change in perception of the self. But before that, it is also change in perception of my role in the scheme of things. It is difficult for that change of perception that I am limitless to come right away. Therefore, first of all, let me understand that I am a member of the community, I am interconnected, interdependent, in fact, the whole world is one like family and I am a member of this family of world, that can be my first perception which in turn will lead me to recognize that indeed I am limitless. So first stage is called Karma Yoga, second stage is called Brahma Vidya, first stage is Karma Yoga, performing Karma. Karma is, as I said, basically it is perception. That's why Lord Krishna calls it Buddhi Yoga. The Yoga of Buddhi, Yoga of Understanding, Yoga of Perception. So Karma Yoga and Sankhya Yoga or Jnana Yoga, these two things Lord Krishna teaches in the second and the third chapters of Gita. Okay, we'll continue. Om Purnamadaf Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachyade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishyade Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Badarayanam Sutra Bhashyakrutau Vande Bhagavanta Punahpunaha Ishvaro Guru Ratmedi Murti Bheda Vibhagine Vyoma Vadvyapta Dehaya Dakshinamurtaye namaha Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri Guru Bhyo namaha Hari Om